I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. This is just Kate today because we have a very special origin sneak peek for you. So origin is our membership for entrepreneurial moms who want to have more by doing less. And each month we have a Maven masterclass where I interview a luminary, an incredible woman who has some powerful insights around entrepreneurship and or motherhood. And this month we are featuring Dr. Shafali Sabari. And as our podcast listener, you are getting special access to this exclusive interview, which is only available to members of our Origin Collective. So Dr. Shafali Sabari is an internationally recognized parenting expert, and her book, The Awakened Family, was a major game changer for me in how I approached parenting, but also just how I approach life. And actually, it's been incredibly healing for me as an adult as well. So today, on this interview, you're going to hear Dr. Shafali talk about parenting, what mom guilt is really about, how we can dissolve mom guilt. Also, the surprising way that she ended up on Oprah, her answer to my question about that is really going to surprise you. And also how we can unhook ourselves from what Dr. Shivali calls the race to nowhere and our obsession with constant achievement and what else there is <laughs> to be striving for instead. So this is a really powerful interview. I hope you enjoy it. And here's the episode. Welcome. I am here with Dr. Shafali Sabari, and I am honored to have you here. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us. Of so as I was telling you a little bit before we got started, our origin community is a community. It's a membership of mom entrepreneurs, and we are really centered around having more by doing less and not having more stuff, obviously, right? <laughs> but having more of what matters in life. So we talk a lot about cycles and we talk about creative cycles and we talk about breaking the cycles of overwhelm and how to sort of disconnect from the obsession that what we do equals how valuable we are. And I know that that's something that you talk about as well. I have absolutely loved your books, The Awakened Family and The Conscious Parent, and I have so many questions for you. So just thank you for being here, first of all. I'm excited. And I know that our ladies are huge fans of your work. So I would love to know, first of all, I always kind of like to get personal first, if that's okay. Did you always know you wanted to be a mom? Well, you know, there's my answer can't be simple. Okay. You, simple answers are not required. <laughs> the knowing was conditioned. You know, it wasn't a deep knowing. And I don't even know what that would even look like in terms of being a mother because it's so ingrained. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a pure knowing ever possible around something as big and conditioned as motherhood. So yes, did I always think I'd be a mother? Of course, it was on my list, but it's on everybody's list. And for those who then can't become one biologically, they have to go through a whole recalibration of their identity. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. So yes, yeah, so on, on, on the condition But from level, a conditioned level, you always knew. Always it's interesting that. because I have a lot of friends who never knew if they were going to be moms. Yeah. Some of them have become mothers and some of them have not. I always knew I would be a mother, but you know, now talking to you, I'm like, was that conditioned or was that a deep knowing? I mean, I always felt like it was just something I really wanted to do, but what's that about? Like, why do we have kids? Why do we do Why do we have kids? Because I will, I mean, I know, you know, this, you are a mother. It's such a pain in the ass. It's <laughs> such know? a colossal and it's so tiring. And it's like a terrible idea. Logistically. I mean, it's, it's just, just terrible. It's a losing proposition. Really? So why do people have children? <laughs> I think partly, I love it at the same time, but sometimes I hate it too. Well, partly, you know, biologically it's primed, right. To propagate the species then women were getting raped or we are praised. So without birth control, we do get pregnant. So then what do we do? Then comes religious indoctrination that it's a sin to abort. Now that's in the mind. Then is the cultural conditioning that it's virtuous to be a mother and it's so selfless and giving. Pack it all in, you have few choices left, you know, to really understand is it truly something coming from me? You know, I say, if you're truly a conscious parent, you really may not have children. And if you do, you're going to have it after, after the birth giving years, because by the time you get conscious, forget it, the shop is closed. So it's not that we shouldn't have children or we should have them through a process of some conscious discernment and awakening. And if we don't, then is the reason why I do my work. We put onto our children all our unconscious stuff, which really wasn't their responsibility to have and bear. Now they have to deal with our stuff and then they have to unpack our stuff. So at the end of the day, we're raising ourselves. You know, we haven't really raised a unique being because we just put on them everything that now they need to unpack. Yeah. You know, one thing I noticed when I was reading The Awakened Family in particular is that... <laughs> I'm sure this is very common. I found myself really wanting to send it like to my parents. Yeah. I know it's not, you know, I, I just saw my friend Gabby Bernstein speak about her new book, The Judgment Detox. And one of the people who came up to ask a question was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give this book to my husband or whatever. And Gabby was like, yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I'm just going to say, don't do that. <laughs> you know? So, but when we are, awakening ourselves or, you know, on the path of conscious parenting and stuff comes up around our own childhood. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Like that is the awakening or part of it. What do you recommend you do with the part of you that wants to just tell your, you know, to like send your book to your parents? I know. I know. I don't know. Like, what do you I think? Know, because you want redemption, you know, you want them to go on their knees and say, I'm so sorry, I abused you, I neglected you, I called you names. But at the end of the day, there's a chapter or part of a chapter where I say, now you're your own parent. You are your own parent now. So to go back into the cycle, this book is trying to break dependency on patterns you know, the goal of awakening is to break your dependency and your attachments on unconscious people, at least. And if they were unconscious, it's already done. So now to go back and ask for forgiveness for their unconsciousness that they were unconscious about is kind of silly, no? So you have to kind of undo it and let it go. And a big part of this work is like your work is to let go. If you don't let go of things and space and time pressures, then you won't create more time, more space, right? 
So you have to let go first. Yeah. And did you start out in your career already aware of what you call the race to nowhere and sort of this, the way that we check off the things on the list and we get the degree and we get the husbands and we get the baby and the career. And then we're like, so real, like I thought that was going to be the thing. And it turns out I'm still, you know, that's not the thing. So when you got, you know, let's say when you were in university and, and in grad school, did you know that already? Or was there a moment when you woke up to the fact that we're all on this race to nowhere? Yeah, I hadn't integrated. I may have known a lot of things and had already begun seriously meditating when I was 22, even more serious than now. But I don't think it all comes together. You know, it takes time to coalesce just because you have wild, wise epiphanies. There are parts of you that are still waiting to be integrated. You know, everything takes time. People should not think that it's all put together. I'm still evolving. Every day I have unbeckoned parts of me that come into awareness. And you're like, who is this person now? Mm. So it's a constant work in progress. But then you awaken and then you're like, oh my God, where have I been for the last decade? And how can this be me? I'm teaching consciousness, but I'm still unintegrated. So there were many moments along my path that I began to understand that even though I understood so much about wisdom, I didn't understand these parts about it. Like I was still conditioned. I was following the prescription. I was blindly, you know, obedient and enslaved to the list, even though I knew on the wisdom level, but you still do on the doing level till they integrate. And then you have to make a big change. It's one thing to know on an intellectual or wisdom level. It's another thing to actually now physically break free. Yeah. And what are some of the things that have helped you personally and helped your clients or your, what well, are they called? Clients. 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 Okay. <laughs> they call patients, call patients, patients, right? The people you work with. What? You pay my living. Yes. what what are some of the tools that have helped them the most you obviously mentioned meditation and I know that's huge for you so I'd love to know more about how you started meditating and what that practice used to look like for you and then what it evolved to right so I think what the tools are meditation but more than that it's the breaking down of the wisdom teachings of eastern philosophy of impermanence of living in the present moment of connection to the self of watching your patterns, non-reactivity, all those central tenets that are key to learning to awaken. And for me, I began Vipassana meditation, which is awareness insight meditation at a very young age, I mean, relatively young age. And it literally broke my mind open to the understanding that we are not our thoughts, we are not the self, we are not the identities. So in many ways, I killed many parts of my ego very young. But again, I was blind to the conditioning and I still got married. I still wanted children. I still wanted a PhD. I was still attached, you know, to certain ideas of how it should look. And it only in my 30s, then in my 40s, began to de-identify with my roles Mm -hmm. and really break free from the attachment to those roles. So I understood it all on a wisdom level, but I began implementing it by first sinking in and then coming out. It's taken 22 years, you know. Mm -hmm. Now for you, you know, you've been on Oprah a bajillion times. You've got these New York Times bestselling books. You're promoting courses, which are beautiful and doing, you know, amazing events. And you don't practice full-time or do you practice like a couple days a week? No, not full-time, no. It's a part of the whole picture. Yeah. And you see clients some 
So how do you do all those things and also know that that's not really, I mean, the thing is the work that you're doing is helping people awaken. So it really is the work, but then it also looks fancy. You know what I mean? Like it looks like the list too. Oh, right, right. So I never how do you that. be in your actual life, which I don't know you that well. So yeah. I don't, you know, I don't really know what your life is like, but from the, out, I'll just say from the outside, but then also remain grounded in like, this yeah. is, not really it's not, I mean, it is it, but it's not you know what i, I mean understand. it looks so like it so this could be what you're tra- what i think you're saying is the trap of work spiritual work or work like you and i do is that this looks good like this is for other yeah, people and it looks like you did all the things the way you should have done them yeah and this is for other people so this is okay to have on the list it's for other people right number one right, it's got, right. It's got the, the, you're serving Yes, it's got a nice wrapping. And so that could, but how could you not, how do you not allow it to be a trap of the ego again? Yes, this is the key. This is the key. So I think few people, I think, are blessed to, and I I don't want to sound condescending when I say few people, you know, and I'm one of the few, but I see how I'm grateful for this. Yeah, it's gratitude. You know, yeah, it's gratitude. That you can fall into your calling and it's effortless and you know, it's not you. Mm -hmm. I know it's not me. It's not this form body. It's the accumulation of all my formless existences and it's being downloaded. It's not me. I'm clear to you. It's not me. So the arrows of compliments go by me and the arrows of slander also go by me because I'm like, it's not me. Why are you talking to me? I'm just the form through which it's coming through. So you understand, you know, so I I don't take ownership of it. I sometimes recognize it in a moment of like, yeah, wow. But it's easy to do. It's not hard to not, it's not hard when it's such a calling that you know it's part of the universal design. It's people would think, oh, she's so egoic or they're so egoic. But actually when it's clearly part of something bigger, you're like, I don't know how this happened. I'm, I'm just doing my bit and I'm keeping my channels clear. But it's at this level, you see the universal design and you're just a speck in it and you're just humbled by it and you just zip the ego and just keep on doing your work. And so, so it's easy actually not to get identified, on the contrary. Mm-hmm. And the second part is that because it's a calling and because it's part of a big design, it's effortless and it's nonstop. So you're just not working. You're not working. You're not working. I'm not working. Right. It doesn't like it's a, do you mean like it's a joy to do? It just feels fun. It's uh, no option. There's no, it's like breathing. It's like no option. It's like, no, like, like a painter has to paint or a writer has to write. You have to do this. Has to do that. It's my painting. It's there's no work. Yeah. I love that answer so much. That's a very relaxing answer. I can feel like I feel my body so relaxed right now. So thank you for that. But it's, now, like, for, mother, it's like mothering in a way. Like there's no option. <laughs> you got to get yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. The pain in the ass. It's but, a pain in the ass. I find doing my work easier than mothering. Yeah, because the, doing your work, it's you and the variable X, which is an, a non-human. Yeah. And this <laughs> variable is a human, you know? Yeah. And they're yeah. doing you while you're doing them, you know? Totally. Yeah. So... You know, one of the things that came up for me in my first year, so my daughter's only two and a half and I've got a second one due in April. So I'm pretty new 
to mothering. And one of the things that came up for me, especially in the first year of motherhood was just wanting to, certainly wanting to do it right, even though my wiser self knew that there's no such thing, but specifically wanting to find methodologies and strategies that I could, if I followed like specific steps, I could get her to basically do what I wanted to do, which was essentially at that time, sleep. So whether it is you have an adolescent and you're wanting them to study harder, or, you know, you have an infant and you're wanting them to sleep or whatever it is that you have this desire for your child and you get controlling about it. I think it's, I'm not the only one who's had this experience. (laughs) So what do we do in that situation? How can we stop the cycle of trying to control our children? Well, I think the beauty of these journeys is that you first go mad. Oh yeah, I completely lost it. Yeah. (laughs) I think you have to watch yourself become the biggest control freak ever, like a maniac, crazy person, telling this infant, go to sleep, go to sleep. I'll take away your toys. I won't send you to college. I won't pay for your food. Like you're You're making angry faces, you're biting your lips, you're clenching your fist, you know you can't touch them, but you're like trying to get, scare them, like go to sleep already. Mm -hmm. So you have to watch yourself go insane and hate mothering and go to the pits of despair to then realize that the problem here is your desire to control the uncontrollable. And when you finally understand that that is the nemesis and you're trying to control the uncontrollable instead of surrendering to the madness, and just letting it go. Like, I can't exercise. I can't be skinnier. I can't eat well. I'm not a happy person. I'm not going to be peaceful and calm. I'm going to be cranky, frothing at the mouth and rude and nasty. Like, just surrender to the madness. Mm -hmm. Then you actually become sane. You know, you have to go through this. It is the process of spiritual evolution. This is the process of complete skin being ripped from you and you're exhausted. You don't recognize, recognize who you are. You've lost your identity. See, this is the point. What's happening through this process of motherhood is you're losing your identity. You're losing your mind. You're losing all known control and you have nothing to hold on to. This is why motherhood is a spiritual portal. It totally you're On your knees. You have no choice. No choice. No choice but to grow or suffer. To grow or die, yeah. And you've seen yourself worse than the parent you judged Mm -hmm. yourself. Now you're like, oh, now I end I used to always tell my mother, how did you drop me from the bed? Like, how, if you were watching me, because we are hawks, right? We're like, it would never happen to me. And it happened to me. My daughter fell off the bed in front of me. In front of me. And I can't get fast, these little buggers. (laughs) Yes, you turn your head, boom. And you can't get it out of your head. So all the ideals of judgment and perfectionism slowly go away. This is the process of your ego stripping. It is a spiritual process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been the biggest spiritual awakening, certainly that I've experienced. And, you know, I'm about to dive in for round two and I'm just like, whoa. Although by the time this interview comes out, we will have had the second baby. So we'll see how it's going. (laughs) I'll add an addendum for sure. So, one of the very common practices that I'm sure you're aware of is medicating children and medicating adolescents, whether it's about ADD or anxiety or depression, you know, suicidal thoughts, whatever. And I would love for you to speak on this practice that we have in our culture 
and just if you have any opinions on it, thoughts, guidance? Yeah. You know, it's everything becomes a habit and then we have tolerance for the habit. So even in India where medication was never ascribed for children and never thought about and every kid had ADHD, but they weren't even labeled it. Now you go back and even they have caught on with that trend. So you become tolerant to these names and these labels and then you become tolerant to medication. And then who's to say, right? So my preference is to be more sterile and more pure and tolerate the madness of whatever, unless the child is truly suffering. With ADHD, the child doesn't suffer. No. The child in the environment suffers. Yeah. Right? But depression or anxiety, the child suffers. Mm -hmm. And some kids are just prone to that. You know, so I don't want the child to suffer, which is not conditionally created it's truly coming from an organicity but ADHD is a function of child with environment you know yeah yeah absolutely. and it's a trend it's such a plethora of diagnosis it's ridiculous almost it's laughable yeah yeah it, it, I, I mean I find it disturbing a lot of it but I've never had a kid you know so I don't know right like it's really easy yeah, we don't, to we don't want to challenge we want to we want to be supportive and compassionate we don't live with that kid only yeah. that parent lives with that kid but i would i always challenge parents to understand their fears understand their loss of control how it makes them feel where is this coming from are they organized are they decluttered are they calm and centered do they meditate every day so first i try to fix them and then i go you do all this then if your kid is still off the roof We'll talk about it. But I often ask a parent of an ADHD kid, you know, tell me if I walked into your house right now, how fast would you find me a pair of scissors or how fast or how long would it take for you to find me a crayon? And they're like, you know, only this week things are really chaotic, so it may take a long time. And then I get, you know, it's not out of nothing. You know, so I ask the parent to look at their home, their conditions, their meditation practice. Are they slow and slow cooking? And then once they've slowed down and they've calmed down and the house is decluttered and everybody's calmer and no scheduling overlaps and mayhem, then I see if the kid is still crazy. If the kid is still crazy, we can talk about, you know, crazy. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But acting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I love that, um, you know, you always have us turn the mirror back on ourselves, of mm-hmm. course, because as a total control freak myself, it's really helpful because I know I actually can control my own behavior. Yeah. I have accepted I cannot control Penelope. Yes. But I know I actually can control me. So it's actually very satisfying to say, okay, well, if there's something going on with her, yes. if I look at myself first, at least that is something I can do. Because yeah, if I'm and, looking at her, there's nothing I can do and I will go completely insane. Correct. Because when we look at them and want to control, uh, as Buddhist philosophy says, we're not accepting the as is. So what is the as is? You know, so yesterday my daughter was complaining that I'm not available to her. I'm always busy. I'm always on the phone. And I didn't pay attention to her. And my instinct, my inner child was wanting worth and validation. So I wanted to say, are you kidding me? Look what I did. I did this. I did this. I did this. You're busy. But we can't. The as is of the child is the as is of the child. So I had to learn my own lesson and go, what is her as is? It doesn't matter what your as is, is. what is her as is? And I had to zip my mouth and go, okay, what is she trying to tell me? You're not available. Bottom line. Doesn't matter if I think I'm available. So then you enter their reality and just start where they are at rather than fight where they are at. And the instinct for us is to, to resist where they're at. Yeah. 
what I said, what I want, but this is the way I think sh- things should be. You should brush your teeth this way. So now you're fighting reality, right? And as Byron Katie says, you'll only be wrong 100% of the time. I love her work. Yeah. So what did you do? Can you, do you mind sharing a little bit more about that story? Because I think that's one that many of us can relate to. I can't relate to it so much with my daughter, but you know, other circumstances. No, I just showed up this morning and she wanted me to drive her to school yesterday. That was one of her complaints. Why don't you drive me? Completely baseless, let me tell you. Because she has a bus, she has a neighbor. I don't need to do it, but anyway. And then she's like, you're always on the phone. Because I talked to my friends in India in the morning. So today I just took off the, I said, look, look, no, no earphones in the, in the ear. Look, I'm all yours. And she didn't say a word to me in the car. It wasn't like we bonded. But I showed her that I'm present. Yeah. And there was nothing dangling from my ears, no appendages. Yeah. And I just, I'm fully here. I just said, listen, I'm here. I didn't expect anything from her. Just made the space. Listen to what her need was for me to be. Un- She's like, you're, all, you're always not available. What was the word? You, you're always occupied. Okay. You know, She's like, I said, yes, because you're okay. I was like rationalizing. And I said, no, I have to show her an unoccupied presence. So I showed her. And that's all I needed to do. I'm like, I'm going to do my part. Mm-hmm. Now you can't accuse me, so to speak. I'm, I'm here in the way that you want. So Yeah, and she can either talk to you or not or whatever. Not like, now look, see? Right, exactly. Why aren't you talking to me? No. Now let's have a bonding moment. (laughs) I'm just, I'm responding. I care about you. I'm here the way you want me to be here. Take me or leave me. I love that. It's beautiful. Are there, do you think there are unique challenges in mothering daughters as opposed to mothering sons? I know you personally are only mothering a daughter, but I know you work with lots of people who mother sons as well. Do you think there are any unique? Well, I think uh, the ideal answer is that it should not matter your attuning to each child, but I think culturally it matters okay. because culture divides gender very stringently. So yes, culturally, there's a war against boys and their ADHD. Culturally, boys are more prone to cutting off from their feelings, their sexuality. They don't know how to handle their sexuality, so they turn into surreptitious, perverted means, and that's what we're seeing. They don't understand the use of pornography. There's an overuse of pornography in the male gender. There's an overuse of uh, video games and violence. These are cultural problems that are attacking the male psyche, that we're not counteracting. And then there's there's cultural spears towards the female psyche of be nice, be compliant, be polite, be compromising, be sacrificing, that we need to combat. This is happening. There's a war against our boys and girls with very definitive, prescriptive cultural messages that we're just going along with and we are prey to in our own lives. So we're not reversing it. I know every time I break a pattern in my life, I'm breaking the pattern in my daughter's life. Mm -hmm. We're freeing our children. Absolutely. It's so big. It's It's so so big. big. It's beyond what we, than us. Yeah. Even, you know, a friend of mine was singing the song, (laughs) such a silly example, but it's a great example of how insidious this stuff is. The five little monkeys jumping on the bed and, you know, one fell off and da, da, da. She was alternating using he or she, because in the tradition of the song is always he, and she's utilizing he, she, and she alternates back and forth. And she's just conscious of including, you know, the feminine pronoun. And I thought, well, that's kind of revolutionary, <laughs> you know? I yeah. thought that was beautiful. I mean, just simple, simple things to be a little bit more conscious Absolutely. of how we're teaching our kids is really important. Absolutely. The, all the things we say conditionally, you know, when you get married or 
when you get older and get you know into a relationship all these things are we act as if they're natural it should be the way of it but there's you know it's just condition they shouldn't, they it's shouldn't just be, culture they shouldn't even be part of the language really because the child should be able to go into the orchard of life and pick if they want to take marriage off a tree we already put it on their plate and then they have to combat it or we put children on their plate then they have to combat it they shouldn't even be on the plate They need to decide if they put it on the plate or not. And for you raising your daughter, what do you most, you know, want to model for her? What do you most want her to know? I think, you know, what the current trend is, you know, autonomy and authenticity. You know, you are your own sovereign being and you're fully capable and you're making your choices whether you like them or not or you're conscious or not. And speak up. I think just that. Just speak. Don't hold it back because you will you know, have emotional cancer and you need to be free of that. You are responsible for yourself. That's great. And then also, you know, the beautiful thing about that as a parent is if you teach your kid, they're responsible for themselves. You know, hopefully you won't have a child living in the basement when they're 25. Exactly. Or maybe you will. I mean, right. I don't know. Right. it's not my problem, but whatever, wherever they choose to live is not really my problem. Right. So understanding the limits of your power, it's not my problem. Like the reason parents keep, attached to children in college and not that they shouldn't be connected, but you know, that deep sort of hovering is because the parent needs to be needed. But if you understand the limits of your jurisdiction, it kind of, you have to start tapering off by the time they reach 14, 15, you have a long way, but but there's such freedom in that. I mean, I, my daughter's freedom. Yeah, I do think about it. And I will say, you know, my mom, did so many things right in parenting. And one of them is that she always has had a lot going on. So I never for a minute felt like her happiness depended upon me. Yes. And what a freeing thing as a child. Yes. Just be like, she's, you know, even as a grandmother, like my mom has, she's freaking busy and it's great because she's filling up from her life, not from my life. Yes. And she was obsessed with my daughter and loves to come over whenever she can. But I don't feel like her happiness is dependent upon what's happening over at our house. And I love that. It's such a gift. Yes. So I do want to repeat that. It's <laughs> emotional, that emotional autonomy. Yeah, absolutely. And that we can have that as parents just as much as we're teaching that to our kids. And the more we have, of course, the more they would have. Yes. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about your business and how you run your business, because I'm always curious how other women entrepreneurs are doing it. So, so you work from home? Yes. Yeah. Do you see clients, though, in the city? No, no longer. So I no just longer. Oh, cool. phone and Skype. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. When you get addicted to your pajamas <laughs> and your home you, and your coffee at home, you're never going to go out. Really. It's just Okay. So you work really fully from home. You do not have an office space. No. And I, and I do, well, do these courses online. Mm-hmm. So I do them in my office, reach hundreds of people right from my office at home. So and then, how did you learn how to do that? Was there somebody who took your arm along the way and said, you know, Shafali, you have brilliant information. Let me teach you how to get it out there. Because Learning online marketing is not natural for a lot of people. So how did you figure it out? Nobody taught me Uh and I barely have any staff. I think I just hired somebody five weeks ago. My first real person, person. my first real person who could, who I may stay for a long time. I had, I've had a few for like eight weeks, six weeks, just for a little project, two people for a couple of weeks. That's it. 
And my real assistant lives in the Philippines. I never have to see her and she doesn't have to see me, which is the best. Yeah. And what does she do? She does all my grudge work, like enroll people, refund people, of course, this course related, you know, send out the yeah. Yeah, okay. But really, the, the spirit of the work has just come from my inspiration, whatever comes deep from within me, from a creative source, you know, but a workaholic creative source, not like, oh, whenever, whatever. It's like I'm... Unrelenting. A workaholic creative Yeah, unrelenting creative, you know, unrelenting creative. What I'm trying to say by that is that it appears easy, and it is easy, but because I'm not attached to the outcome, number one, I'm not attached to my ego and my identification. Number two, I'm truly in the source and field of the creative process. So if I get 50 people, I'm joyful. And if I get 500, I'm joyful. Yeah. Less than 50, I wouldn't be, you know, <laughs> I can't scrap the course. Let's be because, real. <laughs> because because my, my, I have worth. Yes. So what am I worth? At least 50 people, right? So yes. you set a baseline, you meet it, and then you release all the anxiety around greed and numbers and how I look. You ask for the basic, you get your worth and keep going for your worth. What is your worth? What is your worth? And know your worth, ask for it and create a life around it, you know? But creativity, I think, being in the driver's seat of your creative potential. It's not easy and not all can do it. But when you get to manifest your creative potential, you are truly in the flow of life, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't look at it as a business. I look at it as, as, as an extension of myself, as my breath. Yeah. You know? And how is that how you wrote your first book and how that came to be published? And, and did it just, can you tell me the story of how your first book came to be and then how, like sort of the trajectory of then how, yeah. you know, your message began to get out there? Yeah. And again, I don't want people to feel like this is how it's going to work for everybody. No. So they can take this inspiration of it, but not like, oh, she did it this way. So the path is not as important as the inspiration underneath the path. Great. So what I'm trying to say by that is, for example, the way I found my publisher was I was reading a blog and I liked her blog. It was her blog. And I just wrote to her in the response saying, oh, this is how I think and this is how I feel about what you wrote. Contact me if you're interested in more. And I boasted, I said, I'm Eckhart Tolle's, it was Eckhart Tolle's publisher. So I wrote to her and I said, by the way, I believe I'm Eckhart's answer to parenting. I had to find something to say to grasp her, you know? Yeah, it's so just this, gets somebody's attention in this. Yes, thing. again, knowing your worth yeah. and going, what the hell? I'm just going, I know who I am. Yeah. So I'm, what have I got to lose? So these are the inspirations I want people to take a risk, be in the field of your interest. So I was parading the teachers and the people that were in my field of interest. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you want to go date, go, you have to go out there. And if you want a guy who's adventurous or a woman who's adventurous, go do something adventurous. You can't sit here or go to a bar on the Upper East Side and saying, I want a really sporty, adventurous guy. <laughs> You're going to find that guy in the Catskills. You're going to find that guy doing the, he's out there doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know what I mean? So match what you want. So if you like a certain area, you're, you're an artist, you're an, a painter, or architect, then you have to kind of hang out where the architects hang out. So I'm a wisdom buff. So I'm always in the wisdom field. So I was reading a blog written by Eckhart's publisher. Well, who else would I be reading? Yeah. People who are very close to me and in, in alignment with my energy. Then you reach out to them. Then you know your worth. And then you say, I am da da da. And you put it out there. You take a risk. She wrote back to me that evening. Within six days, I was in Vancouver 
I had no proposal. I just shot it from my mouth. And she's like, I've never given someone a contract without a written proposal. And I said, you got to take a risk, you know, we're moving on, let's go. And so I just, that's it. Six days later, I was propositioned to write the book that I had no proposal for and just entered my worth, found my voice, didn't allow fear and doubt to obstruct me, you know, fear like, who am I to do this? Or everyone else talks about it already. It doesn't matter. What you have to say is unique. So you have to believe that. Like it takes audacity and a little bit of narcissism, healthy narcissism, (laughs) really some delusion Mm -hmm. that people will want to read your work. But you also, at the same time, you are completely not interested in what people will say. You understand that you want to do this for you and you just go for it. And you don't think about who will buy it, how many books will sell. You're just in the body of it, in the moment of it. So that's what I did. And I just wrote it unabashed, unafraid, didn't care if one or two people would buy it. And for years, only 10 people bought it. For years. Till, you know, I worked my way vibrationally to getting to Oprah, you know, working my way. And was know, that, but, but the Conscious Parent was not your first book. That was my, oh, my first book was, was a book your, I wrote only in India. Yeah, what was it, that one called? It was called It's a Mom. Because yeah, everyone was like, I want to read that one. I Because I, I was looking, I was doing some research and I was like, what's this one? <laughs> yeah, it's not being sold and I only have two copies. Oh, of it, but okay. <laughs> and I don't even talk about it. And my daughter always says, you wrote another book because I think I'm a little egoically embarrassed about it because it was just a journal, you know, it was just like, okay. But see, the point is you write, you just do it. Right. And, well, and we all have to start somewhere. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The point is you want to speak about this. You're passionate. It doesn't matter if you're in a basement of a church or the synagogue for free with two people. I've done workshops with two people. Oh, yeah. For free. They didn't even come, even though there was no cost. <laughs> you know, the, the point is you just have to put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, only India will publish me? Only 10 books? No problem. Great. So you have to start with the passionate desire to express Mm-hmm. how you express, where you express should not be the question. See, people get fooled, right? They're like, I'm willing to do it, but then they're suddenly not willing to do it. The moment they realize it's a flooded basement and it's skanky and stinky, they're like, no, I don't want to do it. I've taught meditation in living rooms for 15 bucks a person. Mm-hmm. I've taught meditation in my own living room. I've begged and borrowed from friends to do talks there at their homes because I didn't even have a home to do it in. Mm-hmm. The point is, if you want to express, find a way to just do it. You want to cook, cook. You want to sing, sing. Then it'll grow from there, right? The point is to start doing. If you, you can't wait for the right conditions, which is what everyone does. I'll do it when. No, then you're not in love with your, with your expression. Right. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> All you of that. You have to love your expression yes. more than anyone else can love it. Well, and the other thing that I heard you say that stuck with me is that like the subtext was that you know, yes, you had the audacity to say, I believe I'm, you know, Eckhart Tolle's answer to parenting, whatever. But at the same time, early in our conversation, you said this work is not, it's you, but it's not you. And so in a way you're speaking on behalf of a higher something else, a word, whatever. Which so gives it's you the audacity. To just be like, yeah, this is amazing, life-changing, you know, and, and just really nail it. Because if you don't really believe it's you, then it's really easy to talk it up. It's very easy. That's what I'm saying to you. It's so easy because you're, you're, you don't care about the compliment or the slander. It's, it's not you. Me. It's not me. So let me tell you. 
it's going to be good. So I and, love that. And, and then you have this attitude, you know, if the humanity is not ready for this level, then okay, but I'm going to die trying. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, some things are before their time. Yes. And that's okay. But obviously you are not, which is such a good, <laughs> you know, the world, know. I, the world the I think a little bit, you are before your time for some people, yeah. but I think obviously, you know, enough people are ready for this information that that it's obviously working. So I just thank you so much for this conversation. It's really such a gift. Um, and I would imagine people should go find you at drshafali.com. Yes. Okay. Links are below. We'll link up to all of your books and yeah, I just, I appreciate you. And I can't wait to keep learning from what you're putting out there as I grow as a mother as well. Yes. Thank you, Kate. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrup.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.